Thank you for listening to the Celebration Church podcast. For more information about Celebration Church, go to ccacron.org. There you will find information about our church, upcoming events, and how to make a contribution to the ministry of Celebration Church. We hope this message is an encouragement to you. It's awesome. Isaiah. We're going to go to Isaiah 45 this morning. You know, it's, it's interesting to me as, we, as we've heard the testimonies this morning. It's interesting to me. You know, in my, in my, in my head, I, you know, and I'll just be totally transparent. In my head, I, I think, wow, why wouldn't you want to be in, the, in all of that? Why wouldn't you want to be in, in the midst of all that God's doing? And that's kind of the question that, that I asked our, our staff. Why wouldn't someone want to be in the middle of that? And, uh, you know, for me... I have, I've tasted, tasted of, of the river of his presence. I've tasted of his glory. I've watched, I've watched him minister. I've watched, I've watched, <laughs> this is about all that you can do when Jesus steps in the room is you just get to watch. You just get to watch Jesus do what he does best, love on people, heal people, set people free. You know, we talk about the, the cloud of his presence coming in. We talk about, you know, all the different manifestations of his presence. And I, I've seen God do incredible things. This last Sunday, you know, Mandy and I looked at each other at the same time as I was praying for people. Both of us at the, simultaneously heard angelic bells, like chimes, in the background of, of the service. You could, I mean, it was distinct. Both of us looked at, do you hear that? I mean, and, and you heard it too. People smelling the aroma of his presence. All of those things, the different manifestations of his presence. And people ask, well, why, why does God do that? Why, you know, does God need to do that? And why does he do that? And um, I always go back when it comes to different signs and wonders. Of course, you can take a look at the New Testament church. It's full of signs and wonders. I mean, just incredible things happening. And as a result of them, the Bible says the great fear came upon all. Um, and there's, there's a reverential fear that comes along with those. When you start and you've never, you've never experienced that, whether it's the falling or the laughter, the joy, the peace, whatever, whatever manifestation of his presence comes, um, it, you know, it's, it's hard to wrap a, your natural brain around something that's supernatural. And that's the, that's the intent. That's the purpose. We don't worship the signs and wonders, but why does God do that? And, and this isn't part of my message. I'm preaching on a biblical perspective of what's next this morning, as we said, but... Um, but I, I feel like just encouraging you in this, if you take a look, go all the way back to Moses leading three million stubborn Israelites. Stiff-necked is what the term God used. You know, stiff-necked people. And if you take a look, as, as Moses began to lead the people into the promises of God, what did God do? He showed up himself, and there came signs and wonders of his presence while Moses was leading the people. One, it was to confirm to the people of God's authority placed on Moses, and it was to confirm to the people that God was with them, to not question and to become stiff-necked, but to yield <laughs> and to step in. Of course, we know that that didn't work for everybody so well. They all died except for two in the wilderness. That didn't work so well. But, but God did show his faithfulness time and time and time again. 
And so I would say to you, yes, as you know, Tamara said, others have said, God is moving. There is a shifting happening in our church in the atmosphere. I step in. I can't urge you enough to yield to the presence of the Lord, you know, and, and let him affect you, let him change you. Um, someone said this week, well, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to be in the intensity of his presence because all of a sudden the sin and the complacency and the lethargy and all of the things of your inner heart that nobody knows about starts getting exposed. Um, welcome to Christianity. This is, this is what we're called to live. Amen. This is what, y'all don't believe that. <laughs> this is what we're called to live. It's a life of change. Jesus said, if you'll follow after me, let him take up his cross and deny himself. Death to self. And, 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 you know, you say, well, pastor, that's easy for you to say. No, you don't stand here week after week. <laughs> you don't understand the things that, that God deals in my heart as well. You can't step into the pulpit without God dealing and changing with you. So, yes, this is, this is the joy of our lives. This is Christianity, to be like him, to know him, to be known by him. Step on in. Let, God, let him do his work in your life. Today I want to take a look at a biblical, biblical perspective of what's next for our country. How many of you know we had an election this week? <laughs> if, you, if you miss that, you are A, just disassociated with reality or have the news off, the TV is completely off and you're not on social media. <laughs> but uh, I want to take a look at, you know, a, a few weeks ago I took a took a look at biblical Christianity in, in our citizenship and what our response ought to be as citizens from a biblical perspective. And today I want to take a same kind of vein and take a look at what the Bible says is next for us as a nation, what's next for us as a church. And uh, my intention is not to offend you by this. I'm, I'm just going to share with you scripture. And if scripture offends you, then I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> and if you believe that, <laughs> no, I think this is, we're going to dive on in this morning. I want to give you some of my personal observations. This again, these are personal observations from the election and all that's happened. Um, again, this is just, this is just me. This isn't necessarily scripture. Thus says the Lord. I'm just giving you personal observations. Number one, there is a great undercurrent of people in our nation that hold to basic moral biblical truths, and when they're united, their voice is heard. Um, regardless of the motivation behind that, I think that there we saw that. I think that there were people that um, held to biblical truths here and, and made their voices known. Just a couple of facts to back that up. Of course, I'm sure you've heard the news on the evangelicals out voting, but here's a couple of statistics. The Pew Research Center said that 65% of Christians voted for Trump. Again, I'm not endorsing a candidate here. I'm just telling you what the statistics show. Barner Research shows that 75% of evangelicals said the religious beliefs, that religious beliefs affected political influence this time, which is interesting to me because that number was in 2012 at 62%, it was up to 75%. So I think that that gives us an indicator of uh, people, uh, specifically Christians, coming together and voting. Secondly, there is a general disdain for what has become known as the establishment. And the U.S. citizens are ready to return, as Abraham Lincoln said, hopefully they'll put this quote up for you, you might be familiar with it. 
We, were highly, we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. And I think that we have seen that happen. Thirdly, I think that there is a great polarization that's happened in our country. The United States of America is divided. The division is not the result of the election, but I think that this election gave light to the division that already existed. It can be clearly seen. And with great division comes pride, fear, offense, and violence. We're seeing that happen in front of our eyes. Ezekiel 16 tells us about that. It says, look, this was the iniquity of your sister, sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. Fourthly, I think the nations are watching us. The nations around the world are watching the United States. They're watching how we respond. And they're watching what's uh, going to happen here in the next few, few days, years ahead. And then lastly, knowing that there's a great divide, knowing that there is a dead spiritual climate in our country, knowing all that is happening in our country now, if ever, now, if ever, is an opportune time for there to be a great awakening in our country again. I'll say that again. That deserved a much more vigorous amen. Considering all that's happening in our country, now, if ever, is an opportune time for a great, great awakening in our country. Amen. amen. And so I want to take a look at this. What, what is God going to do? What does a great awakening look like that the glory of the light of God begin to shine on our country again? I want to jump back a few, few years. If you can rewind the clock with me and go back to the 1730s, 1740s. I just want to share with you some, some information concerning the great awakening and the time period and what was happening in those days in the early 1700s, the colonial life of America, if you will. In 1700, the English population in the colonies had reached 275,000. By 1720, 20 years later, it was at 475,000. So there was a great explosion in population. In 1714, there was the death of Queen Anne. As a result, there was political upheaval within the colonies. There was obviously English were all uh, in instability. 1701, just give you another snapshot here of what was happening. 1701, Yale College was formed. So there was a great desire for education and advancement. The religious groups that had settled in the colonies had left religious persecution They saw that they saw in their, their homeland. Or they saw that the Church of England was a poor model of biblical faith. And they endured great hardship to settle in the colonies. Soon they would realize that they were no longer the righteous remnant in England, but they were the new church establishment. Nominal Christianity at the beginning of this was unthinkable. They were the persecuted group, but in the new world, without persecution, they adjusted to a new life. Nominal Christianity became the norm. The people became more interested in prospering materially, and in the new land, with all of its infinite possibilities, they began to engage in different industries, build homes, settle down, have families. They worked hard, they created these industries, they farmed lands, they grew in their education, and the society in which they were living was a far cry from where they came from in England, which was full of poverty, alcoholism, sexual immorality, and other social injustices. They were finally in a safe and secure environment. Historians often call the 1700s as the age of reason. 
The Europeans were rejecting the idea of God and replacing him with reason. They rejected the idea that God was wrathful towards sin. They were rejecting the idea that man was even sinful. By the 1730s, there was a cry from some of the pastors and congregations at that time that there needed to come a spiritual renewal. At that time, the prevailing mood in most of the churches was that you did not need or need to expect emotion or any sense of outward display of your Christianity. In 1734, the Great Awakening begins. began at Jonathan Edwards Church in Northampton, Massachusetts. By 1740, a man you may have heard the name, I've said it many times, an English preacher named George Whitfield came after he was kicked out of his church in London. Uh, You might remember the story, he stood up to preach, the glory fell, 12 people were driven mad and, and they were literally driven mad by his message and people, there was joy, there was laughter, people were falling, all of these things were happening and they kicked him out of the church, refused to let him preach and so George Whitfield came to the colonies and began to travel the American colonies preaching revival and repentance, him along with Edwards. And as a result, revival began to spread through the colonies. History shows that there was no speaker at this time that drew the crowds like Whitfield drew. 30,000 people he would, spree- he would preach without any PA system. They said as he would preach, people would climb up into the trees to hear him preach. Sound familiar? And as he would preach, they would fall. The power of God would hit them and they'd fall out of the trees. Many churches began experiencing revival. There was an awakening taking place. The focus of the awakening became a distinct experience with the presence and the power of God and a message that outward morality did not constitute salvation, that there must be an inward change resulting from repentance. Prior to 1662, a person could have membership in the church. It was required that they had to have regeneration. It was required that they have a a credible testimony of a specific conversion. It was required. As time progressed, that requirement lessened, and eventually anyone could, could become a member in the church, and anyone could receive communion. Now, Sounds awesome that the power of God was falling and people were being converted, churches were being turned upside down. Sounds all wonderful. But there were those that were upset about what was happening. Actually, there were some preachers that became very vocal and anti-Whitfield, anti-Edwards. They said that you didn't need physical manifestations. People fainting to the ground or screaming, writhing, singing, or otherwise responding emotionally or physically was not necessary. Edwards taught as a result of that that the manifestations might indicate a move of God or might indicate a conviction of sin, but it, it did not constitute or guarantee salvation. Other pastors and religious leaders saw the revival as a threat to religious authority. They felt that they needed, you know, they, why, why would someone need their beliefs substantiated by emotional responses or physical manifestations? I mean, after all, why do you need to fall on the floor? And after all, why do you need to have joy and groaning and moaning and all of these manifestations? And they began to speak out against Edwards and all that was happening. Now, fast forward. Great Awakening happens, 1730s, 1740s. Mass conversion. People are being set free, liberated. I mean, the As a result of Edwards' ministry, we have just thousands upon thousands of sermons. I mean, Edwards left his stamp. Whitfield left his mark on history in our country. Fast forward 20 years. 
what happened 20 years after the Great Awakening, the American Revolution. Let me just review for you some of the people that went through the Great Awakening. You might remember some of these names. George Washington. Anybody know George Washington? He was born in 1732. He was a revival baby. He grew up in the Great Awakening. Benjamin Franklin was close friends with George Whitfield. Samuel Adams. How many of you remember Samuel Adams? He was a teenager through the Great Awakening. His pastor at the time, the church where he attended, his pastor Thomas Prince, was a friend of George Whitfield. And he had George Whitfield come and preach at their church multiple times during the Great Awakening. John Hancock was a preacher's kid during the Great Awakening. Patrick Henry, born during the Great Awakening. Thomas Jefferson, born during the Great Awakening. Let me put that in perspective for you. The people that would go on to lead our country, the people that would make the declarations about God in our country were people that were affected by what transpired during the Great Awakening and not just themselves, but also their parents. It's time for a Great Awakening. What is the church's response to all that's transpiring and taking place in our country? You know... It's not just going and grabbing your arms and saying, let's go, let's go to violence, let's protest, let's become violent, let's do whatever. No, the response of the church, no matter what camp you affiliate with, the response of the church is that America is in dire need for an awakening. Let me share with you what Edwards was preaching and teaching about this time frame. During the Great Awakening, in his miscellanies which is essentially his journal entries, this is what he was writing. It may perhaps more adequately express the freedom of grace in justifying us by faith only and not by the works of the law, that justification or a right to eternal life is not given in testimony of God's pleasedness with anything that we do than to say that tis not given as a testimony of his respect to the loveliness of anything that we do. For the freedom of the gospel Grace consists in that God don't give us a right to life for anything that we do as a testimony of his pleasingness with it, either for the sake of the loveliness of it in itself or from the relation it bears to him as profiting him or being done from love to him or from honor to him or obedience to him or any respect to him. Let me just summarize what that means, what Edwards was saying. In other words, justification comes by faith. God doesn't need anything from you to do it. You can't earn it. It comes as a free gift of God that he is justifying you. He is both the just and the justifier by faith is what Romans says. Let's continue. Divine light. This was a sermon. Divine and supernatural light was a sermon that Edwards preached in the summer of of, um, 1734. It was kind of, if you will, a precursor to what was transpiring in the Great Awakening. This is, I'll, I'll read from Divine and Supernatural Light. This divine and supernatural light gives a view of those things that are immensely the most exquisitely beautiful and capable of delighting the eye of the understanding. The spiritual light is the dawning of the light of glory in the heart. There is nothing so powerful as this to support persons in affliction and to give the mind peace and brightness in this stormy and dark world. It conforms the heart to the gospel. It mortifies its enmity and opposition against the schemes of salvation therein revealed. It causes the heart to embrace the joyful tidings and entirely to adhere to it and acquiesce in the revelation of Christ our Savior. It causes the 
the whole soul to accord and symphonize with it, admitting it with entire credit and respect, cleaving to it with full inclination and affection. And it effectually disposes the soul to give up itself entirely to Christ. <laughs> this, was the, this was the message, the light of God, the glory of God shining through in the heart of man. What's next for America? As a new day is dawning in the United States of America, this is, I, I wrote this out, and this, is, this, I believe, is where we're headed. As a new day is dawning in the United States of America, the division has been exposed in the light. The plans of the enemy have been exposed in the light. The hurt and offense of many has been exposed in the light. The spiritual deadness of our nation has been exposed in the light. But with the exposing of the shadows of darkness comes the rising of the sun of glory. The radiance of the Father's glory is breaking through. It is quite possible that this moment of the breaking through of the light of God at this dark hour may be the last dawn before the coming of Christ for His church. Could it be, could it be that we may be standing at the edge of the great day, as it were, peering over the mountaintops, watching the sun rise on humanity for the last time before the trumpet sounds. I believe that Christ is coming. We are at the last days, friends. We're living, as it were, in the days of Noah. We're standing, as it were, looking over the mountain peaks, watching the sun, the glory of God, rise for the final time in our day. Isaiah 45.3 says this. I read it Wednesday night. I'll share it again. Isaiah 45.3 says, I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. Let me give you the context of what Isaiah is prophesying here. Isaiah 45 is a prophecy. If you go back and read, it's a prophecy concerning Sirius the Great who ruled in Persia from 539 to 530 B.C. There are folks today that are saying our president-elect is the next Cyrus. I'm not proposing that. I don't know. I haven't heard from the Lord on that, but I, I'd like to give you the context of who Cyrus was and this prophecy in Isaiah 45. This prophecy occurred 150 years before Cyrus was ever born, and it was specific to the point that it named him by name. Under Cyrus's rule... Israel was allowed to go free after 70 years of captivity. Isaiah 45 continues on, tells us the plans of God. If you, if you go back, check the history. Sirius was the one who was responsible for helping to rebuild the temple in Ezra's day. In 2 Chronicles 36, this is Ezra's, or excuse me, this is Cyrus's decree. It's repeated again in Ezra 1. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit. Um, catch this. I think this is important. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all of his people? May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. It was a call for the Jews to be released from captivity and go build the temple of the Lord. We know that Daniel, how many of you remember Daniel? Daniel was, a, was an advisor to Cyrus for at least three years of his reign. 
Josephus records that Sirius was made aware of the prophecies concerning him. We believe that the prophecies were told to Sirius by Daniel. Daniel told him what God had said regarding him. He was king of tremendous influence. He was known for his human rights, his military strength, for bridging the gap between the cultures of his day. And his reign was for about 30 years. Isaiah 45.1 is a clear prophecy. If you go back and read Isaiah 45, verse 1 is a clear prophecy that God says, I have anointed him, interesting, God anointed a pagan king. He was not a Jew. He was not a believer. He was not a Christian, if you will. God anointed a pagan king to accomplish what? Two things, to execute God's judgment in the earth and to release his people from bondage. What does that mean for us as believers? It means this. God always responds in dark days in two ways. One, he will anoint leaders that he will use for his own glory. And secondly, he shows up himself. (laughs) He always does. It's a guarantee. He's coming. He's coming. Isaiah 45.3 indicates to us again this great, wonderful, divine, and supernatural light. So I would like to dive into this light of the glory of God this morning. Again, Isaiah 45.3 says, I will give you the treasures of darkness. By the way, this Isaiah 45.3 is a prophecy concerning the conquest of Sirius against Asia. And they were able, as a result of this, they took away 34,000 pounds of gold and 500,000 talents of silver. I would say that they were victorious. (laughs) Let's talk about this divine light that's shining through here in Isaiah. Number one, the light of God's glory will illuminate the storehouses of his provision. You might find yourself in dark times, but God says that I will show you, I will give you treasures of darkness. I will illuminate for you, if you will, the storehouses of provision. Think back to Joseph. He became a a leader under, under the Pharaoh, and Pharaoh gave a decree in the time of famine. Joseph prophesied, he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams and prophesied concerning the famine that was to come. And this was the response in Genesis 41, verses 52 through 57. And the name of the second son, Joseph's second son, he called Ephraim. For God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. That's a good word for some of you today. God has called you to be fruitful in the land of your affliction. Then the seven years of plenty, which were in the land of Egypt, ended. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. The famine was in all the lands. But in all the land of Egypt, there was what? There was bread. Everybody was under famine except for Egypt. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, go to Joseph and whatever he says to you, do. Hold that. The famine was over the face of the earth and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all the countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all the lands. In other words, God gave to Joseph the keys in midst of famine. He gave him the keys to the storehouses of provision in the place of darkness. Our country is in a place of obscurity. That word in Isaiah 45 verse 3 
says the treasures of darkness. It's the treasures of obscurity, the place of uncertainty. Proverbs 29 says where there is no vision, the people perish, where you cannot see the path in front of you. Verse 2 of Isaiah 45 says the crooked places. You can't see what's happening in front of you. They've become crooked. They've become distorted. God says in Psalms 110 that my word is a what? Light to your path. It's a lamp unto your feet. God is illuminating the path and the direction before us. The light of God's glory will go before us and illuminate the path ahead of us. Much like the early colonies of our country, we need the light of God's glory radiating from his church again, radiating from his people again. The storehouses of God's provision are not what we initially always think about. We think about his provision being materialistic. The provision that is for us, that sustains us as believers, is yes, he provides our every need, but the core of his provision for us, the storehouse that sustains us, is the doctrines, it's the moorings of our faith. If there's ever anything that we need illuminated again in our country, it's the foundations of our faith. If there's ever anything that our country and the people of our country and the churches of our country need illuminated desperately, it's the storehouses of the moorings of our faith. It's the foundations of salvation by grace through faith. It's the, it's the very core, the very essence of what we believe, that there is no other way to heaven. There is no other path. There is no other way except through Jesus Christ. It is by grace through faith that you are saved, that you are justified by faith. You cannot earn justification. You cannot earn the righteousness of God. It is imputed to you by faith. The justification of God comes to you by faith. He is both the just and the justifier. The baptism in the Holy Spirit. We cannot forsake the foundation of the baptism in the Holy Ghost. It is. It is the life source for the believer. Amen. Isaiah prophesied that I will speak to this nation. I will speak to this people through a tongue, through stammering lips. We need the fullness of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And churches have shied away just like they have shied away from justification by faith. They have shied away from the baptism in the Holy Spirit because it it offends people. And then the providence of God. I think divine healing and all of the blessings, everything that comes, the providence of God, understanding His sovereign rule and protection and provision over your life in all regards, no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're going through, understanding the core, the foundation of the providence of God through everything that you face. Natural man doesn't see or understand these foundations. They're, it's foolishness, the Bible says, to the natural man. But to us, to believers, it is our sustenance. sustenance. It is what sustains us. Secondly, the light of God's glory will illuminate the secret places. Hidden riches here in Isaiah 45.3, it illuminates the secret places. And that secret place is the place of protection, the hiding place. Psalms 91 talks about this wonderful place. Psalms 91 
If you have your Bibles, Psalms 91. Psalms 91, the secret place of the Lord. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge. He is my fortress, my God, in whom I will trust. We do not put our trust in political uh, regimes. We do not put our trust in empires, kingdoms. Our trust is in the Lord. He is my refuge. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but I will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Surely, everybody say surely. Oh, you, yeah, you did. that wasn't believable. Surely, there you go. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler. Surely God will deliver you. Surely he will keep you. In Him you can put your trust. It goes on. You, I'll read Psalms 91 this afternoon. It's a great chapter about the, the salvation, the provision of the Lord, the secret place of God. You find yourself, you and I find ourselves when we get lost in the secret place. You want to know who you really are? Go to the secret place. You really want to know the goodness of God? Go to the secret place. You really want to discover who he is? Get in the secret place. Just, just like, excuse me just for a moment. I'll get off. My daughter likes Cinderella. And if you watch the movie, how many of you have seen the movie Cinderella? So the, the prince, she goes to the, to, the, to the castle and they go about their whole thing. And the prince is, is wooed by her and he brings her out. Where does he take her? To the secret garden that nobody knows about. Brings her back to the secret garden and swings her on the swing. It's, it's that place in the secret garden with the Lord that he delights you in his presence, that you can enjoy the fullness of his goodness, that you can allow the moonlights, you know, shining down, the glory of the Lord shining down on you while you enjoy the goodness of God in the secret place. It's in the secret place you discover the goodness of God. Begin to discover and taste of His goodness. Psalms 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in Him. In Exodus, we see Moses, Show me your glory, God! Show me your glory. What was God's response in Exodus 33? Verse 19, He says, Then He said, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And the Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, and the Lord, <laughs> woo, the Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. The goodness of the God. The goodness of God. Get lost in the secret place. Ezra 3.11. They were building the temple. And they sang responsively. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For He is good and His mercy endures forever toward Israel. For He is good. Towards Israel, for he is good. Towards Israel, for he is good. That's responsive singing. They got lost in this praise. And then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. The goodness of the Lord. The goodness of the Lord. The light of God's glory reveals His sovereignty. He says in Isaiah 45, 3, that you will know I, the Lord. 
I the Lord, the sovereignty of God, that you may know I the Lord. Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me there is no God. Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and was and is to come. I am the Almighty. The light of His glory reveals His sovereignty. There is none like Him. He is ruling and reigning over all things. He's ruling and reigning over this country. He's ruling and reigning over the nations of this world. He is moving the pieces of the puzzle, working out his plan, working out the plan of, of the ages. He will bring it to pass. He will not delay. And if there was ever, there was ever a time for an awakening, if there was ever a time for the church to know and to experience, to enjoy God to the absolute fullest, it's now. So don't tell me that you don't need to be happy in church and get the joy of the Lord. Don't tell me that it's, well, we shouldn't be rolling on the floor again. Don't tell me that you should have the supernatural manifestations of his power and his presence. If there was ever a day, ever a time that the world needed to see the reality of the supernatural gospel of grace, it is now. What does this mean? What are the implications of this, number one? I would say that you and I need to ask God that you and our nation may see the light of God's glory more fully as we see the great day approaching. You and I know what's about ready to take place. You and I know. We've been told. We've been given this hope. We've been told of what's about ready to come to pass. And so ask God that we might see the light of his glory more fully in this day. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people, notice this is a charge to the people of the Lord who are called by my name, it's very specific, will humble themselves, not fight on Facebook, not fight in the streets, not try to argue who's right, who's wrong, will humble, humble themselves and pray. When you want to argue, pray. When you think you're right and your candidate won, pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Pray. Pray. Seek my face. And notice this charge to the church. Turn from their wicked ways. He's not telling the worldly to turn. He's telling the church, turn. Repent. 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 Repent, turn. Then what does he say? Three things. I will hear, I will forgive, and I will heal. The light of the glory of God. What is it that we need? God, show us your glory. And he gives us the plan for that to happen. Secondly, being transformed as we behold his glory, let us endeavor to enjoy more fully that glory, lest we make the suicidal exchange of God's glory for pleasures that do not satisfy. Enjoy it more fully. Lord, help me to enjoy your presence more fully. Help me to enjoy your word more fully. Lord, help me to enjoy fellowship of the believers more fully. Lord, help me to enjoy 
I don't want to just go to church to do the church thing. I want to enjoy you. God, I don't want to just read the word because it's the thing the Christian's supposed to do. I want to enjoy you. God, I don't want to just tell people about you because it's the thing I'm supposed to do. I want it to be the joy of my life. Lord, I want to delight myself. I want to fully engage. Stop playing with the sin of the world and seeing how close you can get to the pleasures that lead you off the pit. Find the enjoyment of God. Delight yourself in Him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being what? Are being what? We're being transformed. We're being metamorphosized. What you behold is what you become. Begin to engage. Begin to engage with the Lord. Begin to behold Him. Delight yourself in Him, and you will find yourself looking a little bit more like Him. Have you, ever, have you ever noticed when you get around people that you like, you start to take on characteristics of them? Kind of happens. People rub off on you, good or bad. Get around the Lord. Get real close. What happens when you get real close? You become like Mary at his feet. You start smelling like him. When you start getting at his feet, you start worshiping, you start delighting yourself in him, you start picking up the fragrance of his worship. You start picking up the fragrance of his presence. Number three, hold fast, hold fast to feasting on and proclaiming the storehouses of God. Hold fast, proclaim, preach, preach the moorings, preach the foundations, don't move off of salvation by grace through faith. Don't move off of justification. Don't move off the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Don't move. Keep preaching. Well, they don't want to hear it. I know the feeling. I'll let, that, I'll let you catch up. I know the feeling. People don't want to hear salvation by grace through faith. They want to earn it. They got to do something. They don't want to hear justification because justification means sanctification has got to happen. So they don't want to hear justification because the next step of that process is sanctification. And we don't like that. We don't want to be changed. If God justifies us, then that means that we've got to change. And there's a change going to happen by the Spirit of the Lord in our lives. And if you start preaching the baptism in the Holy Spirit, oh my goodness. That means I've got to yield control of my mouth, and I want control of my mouth. I want to say what I want to say and do what I want to do. So don't be going and messing with my business now. Oh, I got it. I got it. And then the providence of God. We're okay with that one. We want his provision. Until he says you're going to go through the fire to get it. Number four. You can only truly find yourself as you are lost in Christ's secret place. What, you know, Mandy was sharing earlier today. What, ha what has happened to Mandy? She's lost in God. She's found herself lost in God. And when you do that, all of a sudden, you begin to find yourself all over again. Number five, being of those with eyes that see. God has opened our eyes. We have eyes of faith. Proclaim with fervency. This isn't just the preacher's job. It's everyone in the pew's job as well. Proclaim with fervency and with great detail the realities of what others cannot see. That by God's mercy and grace they may be drawn into the same light. You are charged with a great task. 
You cannot call yourself a Christian, come sit in our pews, and not go out and share the love of Christ. The only way that that cannot happen is that you are not experiencing it for yourself. It's the only way. It's the only way that you can come into a church where the power and the presence of God is so real. Week after week after week after week, I hear, I hear it. I experience it, but I hear it. I know what the Lord's doing in my life. I know the experiences that I've had in services and my prayer times, being here at the church, studying in our meetings and such. I know what the Lord's done in my life and what he's doing in my life. I know how he's changing me. I know how he's transforming me. I know how I'm going deeper. God's touching me. He's changing me. You cannot come and sit in an atmosphere like this, in a ministry like this, and not be transformed. One of two things will happen. You will run for the hills for the sake of your own comfort. Or you will yield and say, Lord, search me, O God. Know my heart. Change me. Change me. Let me become more like you. Lord, And because you know what happens is in the midst of all that, it's no longer. In the middle of all that, it's no longer about, oh, I'm being convicted again. Here we go. Pastor's preaching a message that's challenging me again. Oh my goodness. He's telling me I need more of the Lord. I thought I was pretty good. <laughs> it's no longer about all of that. All of a sudden, it's your delight. All of a sudden, you find your delight in God. What is it that my greatest hope for you is? I pray that you find your absolute satisfaction in Him. Not good works and religious deeds. Not just coming to church and checking the checkbox. But you find your delight in God. It's the only thing that will sustain you. It's the only thing. And when you do that, it will affect everything you do everywhere you go. Can't help can't help it. And I realize, let me say this, I realize by saying what I just said, it's almost a polarizing statement. Because in that moment of me saying those things, you have people in this room that immediately are, yes, pastor, Lord, I, I want to be changed. I want to find my delight in you. And then immediately you have those that would say, well, I'm pretty comfortable where I'm at. <laughs> I'm, I thought it was pretty good. I'm, I, I mean, life's good, family's good, job's good. I mean, sure, I'll change some things here or there, but I'm okay. Can I remind you for a moment, if we jump back to the early days of our country, that's exactly where they found themselves. We're good. We've endured great hardship. We've overcome sickness and disease. We've settled the land. We're building homes. We're farming. We're creating industries. We're having a great boom. Everything's great. And reason began to set in over the reality of God. Number six. Rest. This is my last one. Rest. And everybody said amen. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Rest in the sovereignty of God. 
Rest in the sovereignty of God, knowing that he has declared the end from the beginning. Each moment is a step closer to the day of his kingdom, finally and forever being established. Finally and forever. (laughs) It's coming. Finally and forever. Why don't you stand with me this morning? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. I worship you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. How is it with your soul today, friend? How is it with you and the Lord today? I want to... I feel the just the prompting of the Holy Spirit today that there is a great there's a great need in the church today and the need of the church today is repentance and a return to the enjoyment of God. How is it with your soul today? In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus, Jesus spoke through his apostle John. Concerning the church of Laodicea, he said, write these words. And he goes on to say, I have this against you. You think, you think you have it all. You think it's all good. I'm paraphrasing. But you don't realize that you're in great need. You're in great lack. And so I tell you to come to me. Buy from me. But because, he says, but because you are lukewarm, I am going to spit you out of my mouth. How is it with your soul today? Is there a fire burning on the inside of you for the things of the Lord? Is there a passion like Jeremiah said, his word is like a fire shut up in my bones? When you hear the testimonies of what God is doing in the church and you hear the testimonies of how God's moving in people, does it stir inside of you a a, a zeal, an anticipation, an excitement for greater things to come? Or is it just another good story? When you hear the preaching of the word, does it excite within you a passion, a fervency? Does the reality of the words of the gospel leap off the page for you? Or is it another good sermon? When you hear about the realities of hell, does it grip your soul? 
for those that don't know the Lord. When you hear about the realities of eternal torture and punishment for sin, where the full wrath of God is poured out on people, does it, does it grip your heart? When you hear about the realities of heaven, does it elicit any excitement in your soul at all? When you hear about the blessing of the love of God that permeates the atmosphere of heaven, and that God and His Lord and the river of the Holy Spirit is there and flowing, does it excite you? Does it make you want to step into heaven just a little bit more in this life? How is it with your soul today? How is it with your soul today? Where do you stand between you and the Lord? How, how is it? Examine your heart. Lord, search us today. Lord, search our hearts today. Lord, know the intents and the thoughts and the attitudes of our minds and our meditations. Lord, do we love you or do we pay you lip service? Lord, do we really, really know what it means to love you? How is it with your soul today? Jesus. Here's, here's how I would like for us to spend the rest of our time together if you you're free to go whenever you need to go but I feel so strongly in my heart today that there are people here today and you would say pastor the passion of my heart is not where it should be my life has become misaligned my life has become misaligned somewhere and the passion of my soul the passion of my heart is not beating fervently for the Lord sure I love him I love love the Lord I love his house but my passion for him the excitement that I have for him has has died off I love him I think in my head, but my heart isn't really showing it. My heart really isn't showing it. We're just going to close out in a time of prayer. I would encourage you that if that's you, this isn't a, con a condemning message. This is a message of life. This is an opportunity to step in and let the, let the passion of your heart be rekindled for the Lord. I'm going to ask you, maybe just come find a place around the front. We can move these boxes out of the way if we need to. But just come and just come and pray. Come kneel and pray. Come, come spend time in the presence of the Lord and allow Him, allow Him to rekindle the passion of your heart. Allow Him. Because I'm telling you, this is the only thing that will change our nation. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. The altar's open, friend. Come on.
Jesus. Lord, let's pray. Lord, thank you, Lord. Father, we worship you. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us, Lord. Lord, rekindle the passion. Rekindle the passion of our heart. Rekindle rekindle the passion of our heart. Lord, stir the passion again in our heart. Thank you for joining the Celebration Podcast. For more information, visit ccacron.org or call us at 330-762-7458. You can also download the Celebration app from iTunes or the Android store. With my father, it's so hard.